What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So chapter 24 kind of ends our section there of the law with Moses going up on the mountain. He's going to be up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And it, and it brings us to uh, our fifth and final section in Exodus, which is entitled uh, the Tabernacle from chapters 25 through 40. And it's kind of an interesting uh, section, and that's why I kind of just left it with that without a breakdown, because from chapters 25 through 31, we're told what's happening between Moses and God up on the mountain in that 40-day period of time that Moses is up there. And God is telling him how to build the tabernacle, all the kind of intricacies of what to put in it. And the whole purpose of all that God is sharing with Moses is that he would pass this on to the Israelites so that they would ultimately do what God told them to do. And in chapter 35 through 40, we're told in detail how they actually built the tabernacle and and how they put all this stuff together and and, and we're we're told these things. So chapters 25 through 31 and 35 through 40 are very similar. Actually, in some parts, they're, they're word for word exactly the same. And the only main difference is 25 through 31, it's God telling Moses what I want you to have the people of Israel do. And chapters 35 through 40 is how the people actually did these things. Now, when I first went through this outline, it's been a while ago, you probably don't remember, but I said, you know, this final section, we're going to look at it a little bit differently because of the uh, way in which it's broken up. We're not going to go through it verse by verse where every single chapter we look at it verse by verse as we've done so far. And the reason we're not going to do that is because chapters 25 through 31 and 35 through 40 deal with so many of the same things, it would be very redundant. We would look at it all once and then some of it would be exactly the same again. Uh, And so what we're going to do is a teaching through the tabernacle, including all the information that we have here and not being redundant and doing it twice, but making sure that we encompass all that's being said with both those groups of uh, chapters, but we also have, well, leaves us with chapters 32 through 34. So everything else is kind of dealing with the tabernacle, that 40-year, 40 uh, 40-day span of time what God told Moses, the implication and impl- uh, implementation, sorry, of that. But now we're going to have like, well, what happens during that 40 days with the nation of Israel? So Moses is up there, it has all this great stuff of what God's passing on to him, but how did the nation of Israel do in those 40 days when Moses is on the mountain. And chapters 32 through 34 deals with what the nation of Israel is doing and how Moses and God respond to that. And so we're going to pick up there tonight. 
So it kind of felt, you know, it just if you're watching the movie, chapter 24 ends with Moses going up on the mountain, and it would pick right up here, chapter 32, of, all right, now what happens with the nation of Israel as Moses is gone? And then when we finish that, we'll go and look at, well, what happens with Moses in those 40 days as he was up on the mountain looking at the tabernacle and all that it uh, points to. And so we're going to start tonight, so we're jumping forward to chapter 32, when we finish chapters 32, 33, and 34. Then we'll do a whole study on the uh, the tabernacle, and you know there's a lot of great stuff in this chapter tonight, and so we're going to break it up. We're going to look at the first half, which is kind of looking at Moses and God and the problems that we're going to see with the nation of Israel and how they're dealt with while Moses is still up on the mountain. And the second half of the chapter is when Moses comes down and he sees it firsthand for himself and how he responds to that. And we'll look at that. We won't look at that next week. Because we're not going to have our Thursday night study next week because the men's uh, retreat will be during that time. So I'll remind you at the end as well. So there'll be no teaching, uh, no Bible study next week on Thursday nights. But the week after that, we'll look at the second half of this. So starting Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, it says this. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, if you remember back in chapter 24, once again, it kind of just seamlessly fits here. Moses, right before he goes up on the mountain, he says, all right, I'm leaving two guys in charge. My brother Aaron and her. Those are the two guys that are going to be in charge. And Moses specifically says, um, hey, you know what? All that the Lord says, well, enough of that, um, he tells, hey, you know what, just listen to these guys, you got any problems, these are going to be the guys that um, are in charge. And so you have Aaron now who's in charge, and notice the, the people come to Aaron, and these are the same people that just said, all that the Lord says will do. Anything that you said, Lord, all the things, you know, hey, we won't have any other gods before you. We shall not make a graven image. Yeah, all these things that you just said, we will obey. And now it's been a little over a month. You know, we don't know the exact amount of time. We know it hasn't quite hit 40 days yet. Uh, and so it's probably right about a month span of time where the Asian of Israel has gone from, we'll do whatever you said, God, to coming to now the, the leader who is there, who is not up on the mountain, Aaron. And they're asking Aaron to make them a idol. Ultimately, asking Aaron to break the first two commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not worship idols. So in a very short period of time, we have the nation of Israel just gung-ho, we're going to obey everything you say, God, to, well, now we're going to break what you say, God. So before we cast our judgment against the Israelites, before we say, how could they do this so quickly, before we look at this story and just think, you know, what a bunch of idiots doing this... I want us to realize that we are a lot like the Israelites in many ways. And as we look at the failures that we're going to see from them, I think that we can look at our own lives and see how we fail in similar ways. We're also going to note, and, and you know, sometimes we kind of just blow through this and we don't realize, well, what were some of the things that led to this? What were some of the things that, that brought on this ultimate sin of idolatry? What was going on that kind of uh, brought them to this place? Because as we look at those things... And then we look at our own life, we realize, wow, you know what? These are the things that also leave us to different sinful things that we often do. And so here in chapter uh, verse 1, actually, we have four things that helped 
uh, lead the Israelites into idolatry. And the first thing that led the Israelites into idolatry is they were tired of the delay. Notice the first thing we're told. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain. That's kind of the start of everything. Everything else after this is starting with, hey, we're, we're seeing that there is this delay. You know, it's been a while. But like I said, probably at least 30 days, maybe even a little bit longer that Moses has been gone. And, you know, when Moses walks into that mountain, you know, he kind of just goes behind the cloud and, and it's kind of looks like it's on fire and they don't see him anymore. Maybe they thought, you know, he'll be up there for a couple days but they don't know how long he's going to be there. So a couple days go by, a week goes by, he still hasn't come back. Two weeks go by, hasn't come back. Three weeks go by, maybe four weeks have gone by. And now they're really starting to like, man, this is a long time. You know, a lot longer than I expected it to be. And this delay, this waiting period is definitely a problem for the Israelites. Now, you read a story like this and you know that it's only 40 days at the end of it. You think 40 days, you know, that's not that long. But you know what? When you're the one waiting for something to happen, when you're the one wanting it to happen, four days, oftentimes we feel like, oh, man, it's been so long. It's been four days. And you're just like, but then after a week and two weeks and three weeks and a month, and it's like, you know, when you're in that position, all of a sudden, 40 days seems like an eternity to you. And notice the Israelites do not have two important bits of information as they wait. They have no idea how long Moses is going to be gone. Now, if God said before Moses went up on the mountain, he's going to be up here with me for 40 days, and then he's going to come back. I'm sure that they probably would have done a little bit better. Oh, yeah, you know, it's been 30 days, but he's coming back, you know, in 10 more. You know, they would have understood when the end was going to be, but they don't have a clue when the end's going to be. You know, is he ever coming back is starting to be the mindsets that these guys are having. Uh, and the other thing that they don't know is they don't know the reason for the delay. You know, what's going on up there? Why is he taking so long if they knew that, you know what, God is giving him this amazing tabernacle and all these different things that are going to be a part of it, and we're going to build it, and we're going to worship God through it, and it's just going to be a wonderful thing. If they knew what he was doing and what God was giving to him up there, I'm sure once again that that might have been something that would have changed how they waited. They would have known how long, they would have known the reason for the delay, and both of those reasons probably could have given them maybe a little bit uh, better response to this waiting, but they don't know either of those things. And that makes it more difficult for them, and they do not respond to their waiting very well. They allow it to stumble them and lead them into sin. So Israel, they were not very good at waiting on God. We're going to see this doesn't really change much as we look through their history. They struggled with waiting on God. This was a difficulty. They were not good, patient people. But you know what? How many of you can say you're super patient, that you do a great job at waiting on God, especially when you don't know how long you're going to have to wait? You're in a circumstance you don't like. You're trying to ask God to get you out of it or help you get through it. But you don't know if it's going to be five more days five more weeks, five more months, five more years. You know, when we don't know the end, it's harder to wait. Or when you don't know the reason for the delay. <laughs> Lord, why am I in this situation? What's going on? I have no idea why this is happening. And now it's just so much more difficult because of it. You know, I struggle waiting on God. You know, and this is something that, you know, we just, it's difficult. It's a hard thing for us, especially I think in our culture, we like to have things right away. It can be hard to wait. Uh, but that's just something that happens when there's a difficult situation that we face. You know, we're regularly praying, Lord, you know, get us through it quickly. End this now. We, we don't want to be in it for a while. 
We want that immediate answer to our prayers. And often God says, you know what, I'm just going to wait a little while. Just keep praying. I prayed already once. You know, can't you answer it now? No, keep praying more. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait. You know, a lot of the times it just comes down to the fact that we want God to work according to our time scale instead of his. And usually our time scale is, do it now. <laughs> I want it immediately. I don't want to wait any longer, Lord. Hey, I got the perfect time. How about right now? This would be great. Why don't you work within my time frame? Because that seems to me to be the best one there is. Um, and when God doesn't do that, if you're anything like me, you can look back at your life and you can see, you know what? There have been times where I've responded in sin when things have delayed, when I've had to wait, when I, things haven't worked quite like I've wanted them to. Now, if you knew why God was delaying, if you knew the answer to why you weren't getting the answer to your request, you knew why things weren't happening, I'm sure you would wait a little better. You know, if you knew when it was going to end, I'm sure you would wait a little better, but... Usually we don't know those things, and so we often deal poorly with the situation when we have to wait. So the Israelites, they're in that boat. They don't know why God's delaying Moses up on the mountain. They don't know how long he's going to be up on the mountain, and they're not doing well at all. And I think something important to note here is how we handle delay is a good measure of our spiritual maturity. You know, when you, you, know, you can look at your life, and you know, there's so many different tests to say, you know, where am I at in my relationship with God? How am I doing with you know, just my maturity and my spiritual life? And this is one of those areas. How well do I wait? You know, this is going to be one of those things that's going to help determine and help me see you know, how I'm doing in my relationship with God. Because you know what? Being able to wait on God is really all about trust. Do I trust Him? Do I trust His timing? Do I trust when I don't know what's going on that he does? You know, am I really willing to do that? And if I'm not, then it demonstrates I got an issue in my relationship with the Lord and I need to work on that. But the more we're willing to just trust him and wait patiently for him, the more it shows the depth of my relationship has grown in him. And hopefully you're seeing that. Hopefully you look at the start of your Christian life to now and that you do a much better job waiting on the Lord than you did back then. Uh, I'm pleased to say that I can see that in my life. I still need work in that, but at least I'm seeing you know, a progress of I do better now than I did early on in my Christian life. But this is one of those things that kind of just helps us see where we're at in our relationship with the Lord. So the first thing that led the Israelites into idolatry is they're tired of the delay. The second thing that led them to this idolatry was they had a fear of man over a fear of God. So before Moses leaves, he puts Aaron and her in charge, and he says, if any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. All right, these guys are going to be the, the men that are leading now. I'm going to be up on the mountain. You got a problem? Come to them. Well, the people have a difficulty. Their difficulty is waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain, and they come up with a bad solution. Let's not wait anymore. we got a great plan. Let's come to Aaron, and let's ask him, come make us gods that shall go before us. Notice they're not just asking Aaron to make them a god. They want a god that's going to go before them. Hey, you know, we're tired of waiting. We want to get to the promised land. We want to move on from where we are. Aaron, make us a god that will go before us, that will take us to the promised land that we can get out of here with. You know, that's our new plan. We're not going to wait anymore on Moses, on, you know, what's going on. Aaron, you make us a god that can move us in the direction that we want to go. Now, Aaron, as the leader the one that was appointed by Moses, should have said, no, <laughs> I'm definitely not going to make a God for you. That goes against the command that we all said that we were going to obey. 
But also, you know what, guys? We need to wait. It's only been maybe 30 days or ever long. God's going to send Moses back. It's okay. Just be patient. That would have been a good thing that he would have done. But we'll see in the next few verses. That's not what Aaron does. He gives the people what they want. He makes them a false god. And the main reason that Aaron fails is ultimately he has a greater fear of the people than he does of God himself. Which is kind of crazy right at this point in time with everything that God has done and the power that God has displayed and the way that God has dealt with his enemies. You would think, you know, the fear of God would be pretty ripe, especially when you still look at the mountain and you see it in, you know, in flame. <laughs> it's like, yeah, maybe I don't want to do what God told me not to do. But Aaron here is more concerned and has a greater fear of the people than he does of God. And you see that in his willingness to defy God's law in order to appease the people. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare. And this is something that Aaron struggled with, the fear of man, the fear of people, and it did. We're going to see it brings quite a snare, not only to him, but all of them are going to be judged for what they're about to do. But, you know, unfortunately, as we look at this and, oh, how could Aaron, but how often do we do the same thing? You know, how often do we allow the fear of people to cause us to do things that go against God? That we have a greater fear of what the, the popular opinion is of our culture versus what God says we should do. And we need to have that fear of God above the fear of people. You know, Galatians 1.10 tells us, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men... I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You know, I love this verse because it brings out such an important reality for us. You can either be a people pleaser or a God pleaser, but guess what? You can't be both. Are you out to please men? If you are, you're not going to be someone who pleases God. And if you're out to please God, guess what? There are going to be people that you don't please. And you just got to wake up to that reality. And especially in our culture, the more you seek to please God, the more people you're going to offend. The more people aren't going to be pleased with it. The more people aren't going to like it. Why? Because they don't like what God stands for. They don't like what, what he says is sinful and what he says is right. And so when you're living for that and you're walking in that, you're going to have people who aren't pleased with it. And you're going to have to be able to say, you know what? I'd rather please God than you. And so if that's the choice that I'm left with, I'm going to go with God. Uh, but oftentimes... That's our problem. You know what? I'm so wanting to please you that I'm willing to displease God in order to do it. And a lot of Christians, they want to do both. Well, can I just please you both? Well, sometimes that's the case, especially with other believers and pleasing God. You can please them as well. But then there's sometimes where that's not the case. Uh, and you have to make the wise choice of saying God and pleasing him is more important. So the first thing that led the Israelites to idolatry is they're tired of the delay. Second, they had a fear of man over a fear of God. And third, they held a belief that they really didn't need God anymore. You know, when they come to Aaron and they say, come make us gods that shall go before us, that's what they're ultimately saying. Aaron, we don't need God anymore. Make us a God that can go before us and take us the rest of the way. Yeah, God got us out of, you know, slavery and he brought us here and he fed us manna, blah, blah, blah. He did all that, but we need someone now to get us forward. We're stuck here. I mean, we've been here for a whole 30 days. I mean, well, we need another God to move us forward. And they've kind of come to this conclusion that we don't need God anymore, which is kind of, you know, shocking that it's happened so fast. But just make us a new God and we'll be good. The Israelites fell for the lie that they could complete the work of getting to the promised land without God. We don't need
made them. Aaron, you make us one who gets us there, and that'll be fine. You know, Paul dealt with a similar error with the Galatian believers, and he says this to them in Galatians 3, 3. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? The problem that the Galatian believers had was that they believed, you know what, yeah, my salvation was a work of the Spirit, a work completely of God, a work that I have nothing that I could add to, but now that I've been saved, I'm going to complete everything in my own flesh. It started all with God, but now it's all on me to end it. It's all on me to complete it. It's all on me to, to finish it. And Paul's saying, are you so foolish? If you couldn't start it, why would you think you could do anything else? No, it's always a work of the Spirit. But this is where the Israelites are coming to this place as well. Of like, yeah, God might have got us out of Egypt and brought us to Mount Sinai and done all this stuff. But you know what? We can just build our own God and we can get to the next place on our own. You know, in and of ourselves, we can complete the work of getting to the promised land. And no, they couldn't. And unfortunately, we look at this and we look at the Galatians and we look at the Israelites and sometimes we're like shocked at it. But if we actually just look at our own lives, how often do we do the same? How often do we do that in salvation? There's plenty of believers like the Galatians who, who agree, yes, nothing I could do to save myself. But yet now it's all about me in the sanctification process. It's all on me, on me and my power, on me and my strength. I got to make myself worthy in the sanctification process. I got to finish the work that God has started. There are many believers who fall into that lie and that trap. You know, but even in relationships, in marriage, you know, yes, God has established us. He's brought us together. We've founded our marriage on him. But now, okay, now it's all on me. You know, now in my strength, I've got to make this work. In my strength, I've got to do it all. Or in parenting, or you, you name the relationship so often, it starts... We recognize in the move of God and the Spirit, but we feel like, no, i got to complete it in my flesh. That's never a good thing, and it never ends well. And when that happens, we lose sight of our need for God. And then we have a tendency to start thinking, I can do it on my own. I got this. I can handle this. I'll do it in my own strength and my own power. And we get to this place like the Israelites got to where they thought, you know, we don't need God anymore. We can take care of this on ourselves. We can get there on our own. We'll just build our own God. So the first thing that led the Israelites into this idolatry is they're tired of the delay. Second, they had a fear of man over a fear of God. Third, a belief that they didn't need God anymore. And the fourth thing that they see here is they doubted God's word. We're told, for as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So we don't know the exact amount of time, as I said. Let's just throw out the 30-day the idea there. They've been waiting. He hasn't come back. And they're at a point now, like, we don't know what's happened to him. And before we kind of freak out on these guys, you know, I can understand where they're coming from. You know, remember, you know, when he left in chapter 24, we're told um, that this mountain is on fire. And that's what they're, they're looking at. And, you know, this is something that I could see where, like, <laughs> is he ever coming back? I mean, this is intense. You know, can anyone even survive up there? You know, it's been a long time. We would have thought he'd been back already. Maybe he's dead. We don't know what's gone on with him. Is he ever coming here? And so now there's this doubt that he's going to return. But I want you to note as they doubt that because of the practical things that they see, they're also doubting the words of God and they're doubting the words of Moses. 
You see, God before Moses went up on the mountain said, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and the commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. Now notice that last phrase there. Hey, come up. I'm going to give you these amazing tablets of stone. I'm actually going to write the laws on them. But the purpose is that you may teach the Israelites. I'm give them to you so that you might go teach them. Well, what does that imply? You're going to have to come back down. You know, God is even saying that. You know, that you're going to come up and I'm going to give this to you so you can go back down and teach the Israelites. And so God has clearly made it, hey, Moses will be back because the whole purpose of him coming is for me to give him this so that he can come back and give it to you. And Moses himself... He says that he's going to come back here. His last words before he goes up on the mountain is, wait here until I come back to you. <laughs> he was quite convinced he's coming back. He tells them to wait on that. But the Israelites now, they are doubting the word of God. They are doubting the word of Moses, the, the God-appointed leader over them. And really a lot of this doubt came from the delay. It's been so long, maybe this isn't going to happen. Maybe he's never coming back. And all these different thoughts are starting to creep into their minds. And this is something that we struggle with as well. When God's word doesn't happen right away, when it doesn't happen in the way that we think it should, it brings doubts. Oh, maybe, maybe this is not what it's saying, or, or maybe that's not what God meant, or, or maybe God didn't really, you know, he's not going to fulfill that for me. Or, you know, when we have these delays and these things happen, it sometimes brings that doubt and often leads us to sin. So the four things we see here that help the Israelites get to this place of now choosing to be in idolatry is delay, fear of man over fear of God, a belief they don't need God anymore, and a doubt of God's word. And I bring that up because, you know, as we look at them and we kind of bring that judgment against them of like, how could you, you know, how often do we respond in sin in the same things? When there's a delay in our life, when things aren't going, you know, the speed that we want, you know, when, when we fear people over God, you know, when we kind of come to that place of self-dependence, I don't need God, I got this on my own, you know, doubting God's word. These are all things that lead us into sin. It might not particularly be the sin of idolatry. It could be, but there's plenty of other sins. And so as we look at them and we see where they've gone, realize, you know what, we're a lot like them and we struggle similarly to them. So they've come to Aaron, their leader. They pose this, hey, we want you to make us a God. And now Aaron has a choice. Is he going to stand with God, stand with God's law, be obedient to God, or is he going to give in to what the Israelites want him to do? Let's see what happens, verses 2 through 6. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So here is Aaron, he's now the new leader as Moses is gone, the one that's supposed to be representing God, the one that's supposed to be challenging and encouraging the nation to do what's right. They ask him to make a God, and instead of saying no, he says, hey, 
everybody in this nation bring me your gold earrings. They all bring the gold earrings, and who knows how much gold that was, considering how many people there were, and they plundered the Egyptians before they left, so there could have been quite a lot of gold. And they melt that gold, and then, notice what happens. Aaron gets an engraving tool, and he makes a golden calf. Just remember that, because next time we're together, we're going to see something that Aaron says, which is quite humorous uh, as we look at this. But Aaron is the one who actually engraves this. Uh, he makes this golden calf for them to worship. And so as a leader of Israel, he has failed. Uh, and as we noted, he's choosing to follow the people's wishes as opposed to choosing to follow what God would want. Um, and Aaron builds this golden calf. And notice what the nation of Israel says. This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. You know, when you see statements like this, it just shows the stupidity that comes when someone worships an idol. And this is even more stupid because this didn't exist until a few minutes before this. It didn't exist when they were in Egypt. It didn't exist when they were taken out of Egypt. It didn't exist as they traveled to Mount Sinai. It didn't exist the whole time they've been at Mount Sinai to this point. It just came into existence just now. And they have the audacity to not just say, this is your new God. No, they don't say that. This is the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. I mean, the foolishness of that statement. And they're just saying, you know what, we are replacing the true God with this. He's the one that we're now looking to. He is now the one that brought us out of the land of Egypt and will bring us to the promised land. And you know, whenever you look at idolatry, you just see the foolishness of something that you have created, something that you molded and you shaped, and now you believe that it has some power to help you, some power in your life, which is just foolishness, but too often people buy into that nonsense. And notice Aaron doesn't say, well, now Aaron continues he has them build an altar before this golden calf well look at what he says he says tomorrow is the feast to the lord notice he doesn't say tomorrow is the feast to the golden calf tomorrow is the feast to the lord and this is what's so unfortunate here is now it's like you know what we have this golden calf but I also want to worship God as well. We have this compromise in Aaron of like, okay, we've developed this new God, but let's you know, have an altar to the Lord and have this, you know, this false God that we're worshiping and we'll also you know, make an altar to the Lord and try and ultimately to appease the people and God at the same time. And you know, let's have worship of the false God, worship of the true God, and we'll just kind of intermingle them together. And, you know, that's what he's trying to do. Let's mix a worldly, idolatrous practice of worship with what God has declared. Because before this, God told him, this is how I want you to worship. I want you to build this altar. You know, they did that earlier. Moses sprinkles the blood over them. So, oh, let's build another altar. Let's worship the Lord. No, <laughs> he's trying to mix these together. And God is never pleased when we mix or add worldly worship to our worship of him. And, you know, sadly, this happens a lot in the church world today. It's becoming more and more prevalent of taking what God has said as the true worship of what we should have and then adding things of the world, things that God doesn't want, things that really go against his word and what he is. And let's say, you know, let's add that. Or maybe, you know, what? there's things that God says we should do in worship. That's kind of a turnoff. So let's take that away. You know, and it's really just this, hey, we want to appeal to, you know, whatever group 
And, you know, a lot of people, they don't like to hear about sin. They don't like to hear about hell. You know, those are kind of the turnoffs of Christianity. So we're not going to ever talk about that. Let's remove that from our worship of God. And, man, there's this other stuff that, you know, is in the world that's just great. And, you know, they love it. And let's add that into it. And, man, we're going to just be bringing in lots of people. And the reality is, yes, you will. Lots of people are loving that. But the problem is it's not true worship of God. You're bringing them to false things. You're trying to mix worldly stuff with godly worship. And ultimately, no one's blessed by that. God surely isn't. And neither are these people who think, oh, this is so great, but they're not actually getting the truth, so it doesn't bless them as it needs to. So the people get up early the next day. They have a feast. They continue in their sin. And now we're going to see how Moses and God respond. So this is what transpires And now, obviously, God already knows what's going on, but he's going to let Moses know what's going on because Moses is unaware up to this point as to what's happening. Verse 7 through 10 says this. And the Lord said to Moses, Go get down, for your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make you of you a great nation. So Moses, I'm sure, I mean, this is just an amazing time with him. He's getting all the stuff about the tabernacle and just seeing the intricacies of it and and how, you know, just spectacular that is. And then all of a sudden God says, you know what, Moses, get down. You got to go down to the people. And then he says, why? For your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made a themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Notice God quotes them exactly. God knows exactly what's going on. He's not unaware of what's happening. But now Moses, for the first time, is hearing what's going on. And he's probably thinking, oh, everything's great down there. I mean, it's awesome up here. I don't want to go down. No, you need to go down. And notice the first thing that God says. Your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. (laughs) And this is interesting. You know, parents do this all the time. You know, I've done this with Scarlett and Eden. You know, Jenny, your daughters are acting up, and, you know, you better deal with them as opposed to my daughters or our daughters. When they're bad, they're yours. You know, we're kind of I'm disowning them for a moment here because of their behavior. We actually see this with God. I'm ultimately kind of saying, hey, Moses, your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt, when really they're God's people who he brought out, but I'm, I'm kind of disowning them right now and their behavior. And God starts with that. And, well, why? Well, what is what is it that they've done? And he says, they had turned aside quickly out of the way of what I commanded them. It's only been a few weeks, and already they have made another God. And they have the audacity to say, this is your God, O Israel, that has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And God goes on to say, I've seen this people, and indeed it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And I will make you, of you, a great nation. Here now we see how angry God is at the situation and what the Israelites are doing. And he's basically telling Moses, I've had enough. Moses, you just leave me alone. You don't do anything, and I will, in my wrath, consume these people. Not consume some of them. 
He's speaking of consuming all of them because notice he's basically saying, and then Moses, I'll start over with you. I will make a great nation of you. Okay, so I'm done with this stiff neck people. I'm going to wipe them all out, Moses, and then I'll start with you. And just like I did with Abraham, I will just make a great nation from you. And that's how we'll do it. Now let's see how Moses' response to this is. And I want you to note the humility of him because, you know, that's a pretty good offer. <laughs> wow. I mean, I will be like Abraham. I mean, ultimately, I guess you could technically say God could still keep his promise. You know, I'm going to make a great nation out of Abraham. Well, he could just do it. He did, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He kept promising. Now Moses, as long as he makes a great nation through Moses, is still connected. But now Moses is like, well, I could be the fourth guy on that list. Now it's going to be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. You know, I mean, here's a guy who could have thought this would be great. Yeah, I'll make a great nation to me. Good. Yeah, let's get rid of this group. They are stiff-necked. They are difficult. They are a problem. That's a good plan, Lord. But notice that is not his response. Verses 11 through 14. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of I, have, I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. So Moses hears what God says to him, and his response is to plead with the Lord, to intercede on behalf of the nation of Israel. And he ultimately makes an appeal to God in three different ways. First, Moses appeals to God on the basis of grace. Why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? Moses basically said, hey God, we didn't deserve you bringing us here to begin with. We didn't deserve you taking us out of the land of Egypt. You did it by your grace, not because of something that we deserve. Please do not stop dealing with us on the basis of your grace. And notice Moses gives the people back to God. Your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt. God, I'm not taking ownership of them. I'm not their God. I don't want them following me. It's your people. You brought them out. Please stay in that role. I don't want to be that Deal with us in grace. Second, Moses appealed to God on the basis of glory. He says, why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Moses is basically saying, Lord, if you do this, it is going to bring discredit to your name, discredit to who you are. It will diminish your glory. I mean, why now, after all that's happened, after all the plagues, after everything you did to deliver us from Egypt, would you now give all the world, especially the Egyptians, this, you know, now they're just going to say, see, that God just brought them out there to kill them, brought them out to the mountains to consume them. You know, what's that going to say about you and your glory, and what's that going to do for you? That's not going to bring you glory. Don't do that. Third, Moses appealed to God on the basis of goodness. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self to multiply them and give them the promised land. Lord, keep your promises. 
You're a good God who always is faithful. Don't break your promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Israel. You know, when we appeal to God through prayer, or even we just want to remind ourselves of some important truths of God, I think these are great things to come back to. God's grace, God's glory, God's goodness. That we bring that to him. And so often, even when we, when we share a promise of God, it's not like, Lord, I just want to remind you of this just in case you forgot. You know, as we pray that, it's a reminder to us. It's to encourage us as we're praying that we pray these promises, that we are reminding ourselves of God's grace, of his glory, of his goodness. It's a good habit to get into. And we're told the Lord responds to Moses' plea by relenting from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now here's something interesting that we see in Scripture many different times where it looks like as you read this that Moses now, because of this plea, because he deals with God in this way and and says these things, that he changed God's mind. That God was set to destroy the nation of Israel and now Moses has changed the mind of God and now God is not going to destroy the nation of Israel. But we need to remember God is all-knowing. He doesn't sit up in heaven and wait to see how things are going to work out, wait for us to kind of motivate him in a certain direction or you know, influence him for something. You know, he, he's not surprised by what Israel did, and he knew what he was going to do to them. He knew how he was going to respond to them. He knew what Moses was going to do. And so this isn't something where Moses is, is you know, changing God. Uh, we need to realize that from God's perspective, he always knew what he was going to do, but Moses didn't. And so much of what is written is really written from the perspective of Moses in this instance, or just a a human perspective, not from God's, because at the end of the day, you know, it has to be written that way. You know, if it was written kind of from from God's perspective as humans, we wouldn't really grasp it or understand it. And so, so much of these things and so much of the terms like relenting and stuff like that, it's terms that, that we can grasp and kind of understand. And so it kind of seems like, okay, you know, he was ready to destroy, but now he doesn't. But it's an encouragement of, you know, hey, God wants us to intercede. God loves the fact that Moses ultimately had his heart for the people. That Moses wasn't like, that's a great plan, God. Let's wipe them out. No. Hey, remember your grace. Remember your glory. Come on, remember your goodness, God. The promises that you've made. Don't do this. That's exactly right, Moses. That is my heart. That's where I want you to be. And I'm going to allow you to get to that place. And I'm going to put you in this situation just so that you can get to where I am. And so much of prayer, that's what it is. You know, it's not to get God to do what we want. It ultimately is just to change us to be more like him. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. I suppose that I need not say that this verse speaks after the manner of men. I do not know after what other manner we can speak. To speak of God after the manner of God is reserved for God himself, and mortal men could not comprehend such speech. In this sense, the Lord often speaks, not according to the literal fact, but according to the appearance of of things to us, in order that we may understand so far as the human can comprehend the divine. And so the descriptions that we see here are descriptions that are kind of looking at this from Moses' perspective. He hears what God says, and it's like, oh, Lord, no, don't do this, and I, I just want to intercede, and now, oh, God, you didn't do it. Oh, that's so great. I'm so happy that my prayers have power, that I can come to you, and I can pour out my heart to you, and, and, and it means something. And so we're kind of seeing it from Moses' perspective, but don't lose sight of, you know, what God is and how he knows and uh, thinking that, you know, he ultimately was going to kill the people and decided not to. But this is where we're going to stop 
Because as I mentioned, the first half deals with Moses and God here up on the mountain. But you know, Moses is all for intercession, all for the people. And it's going to be interesting to see now when he actually sees it, because he just hears it. You know, it's one thing to be told of a sin and told of something that people are doing. But when you actually are confronted with it face to face, all of a sudden you see how bad it really is. You know, they made an idol. Oh, that's horrible, God. And then he's going to go see it. He's going to watch these people dancing, and, and we're going to see that they're going to be doing more than that. And he is appalled at what happens. And he's going to go from a, a little bit different of like, Lord, please spare them to we're going to see some anger coming from him. But we see, you know, in the end of it all, the heart of Moses is still for the people and the heart of God is still for the people. But we'll look at that, you know, how they deal with and the consequences of these actions will come in the second half of this. And as I said, remember, uh, that won't be next uh, Thursday because we won't have a study. You'll be here by yourself. Um, but uh, the Thursday after that, we will be back on normal schedule. So the first half of the chapter, four things that lead the Israelites into idolatry. They're, they're tired of the delay. They have a fear of man more than a fear of God. They believe that they didn't need God anymore, and they doubted God's word. That upsets God. God reveals to Moses he's upset, leads Moses to responding by interceding, appeals to God on the basis of grace, of glory, of goodness. You know, and that should be our heart. You know, because when we read this, and I know so many times in the past I've read this, and you know, and that's why I kind of started with before we get into our judgmental view of the nation of Israel, which has been my view of them so often when I read scripture, to just kind of step back and say, oh, wait a second. You know, how often am I like them? And I should be more like Moses. Instead of reading and be like, how dare they, but have the heart that says, Lord, yeah, I know, they're horrible. But yet, still, please be merciful. Still be gracious. Still forgive. And hopefully that's our heart for ourselves. You know, it usually is. You know, typically when it comes to ourselves, it's like, Lord, be gracious and merciful and forgiving, but not for them. Um, you know, but having that heart for others, it says, you know what, even when they're failing, this is what I want, Lord, and I'm going to appeal to you on the basis of these things, and to realize, you know what, we're not much different than the Israelites. Uh, you know, we struggle with the same things, you know, the similar things that lead us to sin, uh, and hopefully we can kind of understand that and realize that uh, we do have what they don't, the power of the Spirit of God to overcome things. Um, but any thoughts on this first half of chapter 32? 